Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today we're going to really get to the heart of what this show is all about. We talk about great ideas, innovative new approaches to the biggest problems facing people and our country. And normally we focus on ideas in government or politics or society, the way we organize ourselves collectively in everything we do. But today I wanna really focus on something that truly exemplifies the spirit and the idea of this show, a great idea that relates to technology and space and perhaps the next frontier, the final frontier, if you're into Star Trek, of human exploration. I was recently made acquainted with a blog from Casey Hanmer, who is a blogger who writes about space, science, travel, and tree houses, interestingly enough, at blog.caseyhanmer.com. And he is highly qualified to write about these things. He has a PhD in theoretical physics from Caltech. I do not have such a degree. So I am very, very impressed by that. He's designed maglev systems. That's magnetic levitation systems at Hyperloop. I, I think I understood all the words in that sentence. He wrote software at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and he founded Terraform Industries to, and I'm not making this up folks, accelerate atmospheric hydrocarbon synthesis. And most importantly, he's written a series of blogs highlighted by Derek Thompson in The Atlantic, a fantastic writer in his own right, who, who talks about optimistic visions of the future of technology. Uh, he brought to my attention Casey's two fairly recent blog posts about why we might be on the threshold of a revolution in how we approach space, how we design space travel, how we think about the entire enterprise of going into space. I thought it was well worth some focus on great ideas. So Casey, or I should say, Dr. Hanmer, welcome to Great Ideas. Thank you, great to be here. Well, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you. And look, for our listeners, I know that I was sort of tongue in cheek referring to a lot of big words and big terms in the open there. And you may be a little worried that this is about to go over your head. I promise you that this is absolutely fascinating. And if, if, if Casey is even partly right, it really does change the entire way we think about space and sort of the future of, of industry and exploration. And so let's get into it. And we're gonna start at a very, very high level. So what you focus on in these two eye-opening blog posts is Starship. Can you just tell us what is Starship? Starship is a logistical system that's designed to take the difficulty of putting things in space and dissolve it, make it affordable for essentially any organization or individual to interact with and to put stuff in space. Yeah, I'll go with that. It's it's meant to be a conveyor belt. And it's it's it comes to us from Elon Musk, right? It, it's 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 part of SpaceX. That's right. SpaceX has gained notoriety over the years for its extremely ambitious and bold technological developments, its high-risk, hardware-rich development programs. We've seen a lot of rockets explode, but we've also seen really astounding successes launching. We've seen recovery of the first stage. We've seen the first all-civilian spaceflight to low Earth orbit, recently with the Inspiration4 crew. They're SpaceX has, has, has achieved things uh, that were previously really only the province of a, a very, very small number of, of extremely motivated and wealthy, uh, you know, well-resourced government programs. But they didn't stop there. They said, well, 
really at SpaceX, we started out building rockets because we wanted to put people on Mars and people on the moon and not just people on Mars for like a couple of days and take some photos and come home, which would be pretty good in itself. But we want to put people on Mars in a way that enables millions of, you know, more or less regular people to go there and live and build a new frontier. And it really cannot be done without having a, an extremely capable rocket, a rocket that's able to launch and transport hundreds of tons of cargo from the earth to Mars, no questions asked, and also quite affordably, which means that rocket has to be largely reusable. And none of these things have been done before. We've had a handful of launches like the Saturn V that have lifted payloads over 100 tons into low Earth orbit. And we've had rockets like the Space Shuttle that have attempted to do partial reusability, but in the end kind of hobbled by programmatic concerns and unable to deliver the dream. Well, I apologize to our listeners there who may have heard, we're talking about whiz-bang technology. This is funny stuff because on, on Casey's end, he's having a, just a little bit of, of audio interruption. Right before we got in the air, I had an entire electrical interruption in trying to record this. Here we are talking about the, f- the future frontier of technology in the world, and we're having some internet problems. Nonetheless, let me just read back what I just heard. So for a long time, if you thought of space travel, you'd think of NASA. Maybe you'd think of the Soviet, then the Russian space program, the Chinese, the Indian space program. There, there were large, relatively wealthy countries, mostly the US, mostly NASA and the European Space Agency were able to essentially take human beings into space and do things there. And we, of course, all think about the moon program. But about 18 years ago, a private enterprise, SpaceX, was started to sort of shift the paradigm of how we do this and think about it as, hey, this is something that we could do commercially, repeatedly, in kind of a whole new way. And that's really what we're talking about. And Starship is sort of the the latest and, and most advanced iteration on that vision. Is that right? That's right. Starship is, it's intended to move millions of tons of stuff into space. And just taking a step back, as I mentioned a moment ago, most people, when they think about the space program, think about the moonshot from the 60s, or they think slightly later to the idea of the space shuttle. And it sounds to me like there are echoes in Starship of the vision that was supposed to be what the space shuttle was all about. Is that is that true? Is this, this doesn't sound like a new idea that we'd be able to have a rocket that we could reuse and sort of a, a platform for continually going up to space in more of a conveyor belt fashion. That's right. The Apollo program was conceived to answer a different question to what Starship is trying to answer. The Apollo program was about getting a couple of people to the moon for a short period of time and getting them back as quickly as possible with the limited technology of the 1960s. Today, obviously, we know a lot more and we can afford to lift the scope of our ambition to the technology system necessary to move millions of people into space sustainably. So just to give people an idea of why, and, and to get into the, the, the notion that you're really focused on in your writing of why Starship is so potentially revolutionary. Could you give a sense of 
how much of a shift it would represent in terms of how much stuff we can bring to space and how often. Sure. I started thinking about this sort of thing when I was still at NASA, actually before I even went to NASA. And my concern at the time was motivated by the observation that even JPL, which builds spacecraft extremely quickly by any reasonable standard, it takes between six and eight years to do a design from, you know, napkin sketch through to launch. And then it might take, you know, a few more years to get to wherever it's going. And that's long enough that if you, if you look at the trajectory of what SpaceX has achieved in Boca Chica with their rocket, even if we started designing new spacecraft now to go on Starship, they wouldn't be ready in time, which means that there's a potential that other organizations outside of NASA will be able to be first on the scene to take advantage of this new capability. And the most important thing to internalize is that camping, in a way, is a little bit like going to space in that if you the John Muir Trail or the Appalachian Trail and you're carrying a backpack, you become extremely aware of the weight of things that you don't use much and you want to cut down that weight as much as possible. And the same thing goes, it's so difficult to get to space that that spaceship designers, you know, spacecraft designers, you know, in every agency on earth have drummed into them from the moment of birth that they have to make things extremely light no matter the cost. And so we end up with design features that are, make a lot of sense in this instance. So we, we have rovers that are the size of a, of a large car that weigh as much as a heavy motorcycle. We have uh, materials like titanium and aluminum, where they typically start with a, with a chunk of, of stock material that's already expensive. And then they spend months carving it down until it's you know paper thin so that it's light enough and strong enough to do these tasks. Uh, and all this, of course, adds time. It adds expense. It adds complexity that uh, is not necessary with Starship. If Starship is successfully able to remove the mass constraint from missions, then we don't have to spend what limited resources we have on optimizing mass. We can spend that resource on optimizing flux, on optimizing the rate of creation of new missions, of building new spacecraft, of building new instruments for space telescopes uh, that will be necessarily much more powerful, much heavier, but no one cares because the mass doesn't matter anymore. And just to give you a couple of concrete examples, the Mars rovers that NASA successfully landed most recently on Mars, the uh, Curiosity and the Perseverance rover, each weigh are roughly 1,000 kilograms, about 2,000 pounds. And they are nuclear powered and they trundle around and they do experiments with their onboard instruments that uh, on Earth would largely require an entire laboratory, but have been you know, compressed, compactified and, and solidified so that they can be run on a small rover that's powered with less power than it takes to turn on a light bulb. But if uh, 200,000 pounds of cargo on Mars per flight, and they fly five starships per launch window for 50 starships per launch window, you know, very quickly, it, it becomes extremely difficult to fill that cargo volume with rovers that cost a billion dollars each and take 10 years to build. And so my question really for NASA and for all these organizations has always been, how do we fully take advantage of that? How do we build a spacecraft that, uh, a new rover, if you like, that is heavy and basic and cheap and mass producible? You know, it can be made by Caterpillar or something. And then we can focus on building instruments that go on this rover. And the instruments themselves don't have to be quite as compact and cheap and light and carefully qualified because we can afford to send 10 of them. And if one of them fails, it's not the end of the mission. It's not the end of the career of the of the scientist who's behind that particular instrument. And I just really like this idea that it's not universally true, but in general, that technology, new technology can bring new kinds of abundance. And this is one of those applications. That's 
I mean, that's what I found so eye-opening and so important about what you wrote is that, and I, this is, I, I'm really going to try and keep this episode as math-free as possible, but I think some of the numbers matter here, not in a heavy science sense, but just in a, in a dollars and cents sense. So you write that the cost per flight with Starship could fall if everything kind of goes to plan and, and it's on track to, the cost per flight could fall to $5 million or below that. So that would mean that the costs would be a thousand times less than when we were using the space shuttle. That's one way of looking at it. Things cost $1,000 less. So look, things cost $1,000 less. Great. You know, we all save the taxpayers save money or for the same amount of money, we can do a thousand times more is sort of, is sort of your point. You also present right. it in terms of, in terms of how much stuff just, just by weight. And you say in your article, in your most recent article, that if we get up to one flight per day, which is astonishing, I don't, I don't even have a sense of how many global fl flights we have per year, but one flight per day would be a pretty heavy volume, it seems to me. If we get up to that for Starship, we're looking at the ability to launch a million tons to orbit every year, which would exceed the current launch market of about 500 tons a year by a pretty big margin. So either way you look at it, in terms of weight or in terms of dollars, what you're saying is that Hey, folks, Starship is, as our current U.S. president would put it, a BFD. It's it's not just it's not just oh this is this is the next this is the next thing in in space. This is an entirely different thing. This is a thousand times more capability than we currently enjoy today. That means we need to rethink everything. All right, I just said a lot there. I don't have a PhD. Did I get any of that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a big it's a big deal and. And certainly Starship is hasn't launched to orbit yet. It's not a done deal. It's not guaranteed. But you know, there's a team of extremely smart, well-funded, well-motivated people who are the world experts on this working on it. They act like they intend to succeed and they have met their milestones to date. The major things three years ago that I worried about, such as you know, the flyability of a full flow stage combustion cycle methane engine, which is the Raptor engine, or the stability of their stainless steel structures or their the maturity of their guidance software. It's all been de-risked. They've already done the hard part. They've already done the the flipping, the flip maneuver, which allows them to come back and land. And sure, I expect you that can see on YouTube, right? And stuff like that. Yes, of course. It's all in public. There one of the amazing things about this is that there are, you know, dozens of of amazing uh, Journalists essentially on site tracking every move and counting every rivet. I can't keep up with it anymore. But but it's amazing if I ever want to do a deep dive, I can just jump on Reddit or NASA Spaceflight and see the latest you know detailed. You know, I I feel sometimes these people have have better information than the people on the inside of the company do about exactly what's been built. It's just it's it's very inspiring for me to be you know interested and and somewhat knowledgeable in this area and to be alive you know essentially during the generation of the previous one hundred thousand generations of humans or whatever, that happens to be the generation that's going to finally nail this problem and, and make, you know, potentially interplanetary transport, mass transport, a thing. You know, in the same way that, you know, our parents' generation were the people who figured out how to do container ships at scale. 
and 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 kind of make the ocean the oceans which almost within living memory were impossibly vast and difficult to get over you know not a thing anymore well that's i mean that is the other thing that comes through i think so clearly and i i urge people to check out your blog it's at blog.caseyhanmer.com the thing that comes through it so needs clearly, a name by the yes, way. you you do. If need anyone a name. has a name, suggests a name, just like send me an email. I would love to get a good name for it. I just can't think of one. All right, I'm putting this out to our our tens of thousands of listeners on radio and podcast. Help Casey with a name. All right, you, you can. I'll tell you what. First, subscribe to this show. Send me an email or send him him an email. The contacts right in the blog. We're gonna we're gonna crowdsource this. I, what comes Good. through really clearly here and. You know, we're, we're coming up in, in just about a minute on having to take a break on The Great Ideas Show. But what comes through really clearly, I just finished reading the great David McCullough book about the Wright brothers, which I commend to everyone. And what is continually astonishing is just following the sequence of from 1903 and that first flight to a few years later when it was fairly routine and there were air competitions to where we were in World War II and now we're at the point, it, it, was, it was such, at that moment, such an anticipated revolution. And people could see that it would be a revolution. They could see that it would change the world. And they couldn't quite conceive of how. They knew that the paradigm was about to shift, but they hadn't worked out all the deep implications of it. What comes through so clearly in your blog is the exact same thing about this moment. Sure, there's a step or two to take. If this comes to fruition, it's not just that we're about to have a giant leap forward in what we do. It's that we're going to have to absolutely rethink everything about our relationship to space and to planet Earth and to what's not on planet Earth. So how close are we? What needs to happen before we know that we're on this path? Well, your guess is as good as mine. I've always been very optimistic about these things. And I think long-term optimism is warranted. Short-term pessimism, obviously, there, there will be more setbacks, challenges, regulatory hurdles, just basic logistical challenges to making this happen. But I think, I think you know, in a year's time, we may be disappointed. And in 10 years' time, we should be pleasantly surprised uh, about this. So I, I'd say uh, you know, SpaceX, um, they have more reason than anyone to want to get this done. So we may, we may see an orbital test flight in the first half of this year. And, and I would hope that you know, once, once those are going, they can figure out the re-entry and landing and, and recycling process you know, pretty quickly. They've done it before. And, and we'll actually see you know, the, the stack, if you like, qualified for launching uh, spacecraft, not people necessarily, but spacecraft you know, within a year or two. And they will be using it to build out the Starlink constellation. So let's, let's start to tease out some of what all of this would mean because I think, as you say, look, it, it's not, it's not a done deal. It's not a slam dunk that this is going to happen. But I think what you present in your blog is, Hey people, we need to start to think through the implications of this, because as you say, it can take you a 10 year design cycle from back of the napkin yeah. to let's roll something out to the launch pad, which as you just mentioned a moment ago is well within the window that we could be having a totally different approach to how we launch things into space. And what you're saying is we need to start that rethink right now. So you were starting to mention a few minutes ago that the way we design 
is totally governed by weight. That how much does it cost to launch? I mean, I guess Americans aren't that familiar with kilograms, but we do things on a kilogram basis. I mean, how, how much does it cost to launch something today? And how much is that about to change if things work out with Starship? So right now, you know, the cheapest launch vehicle available is is the Falcon 9, which will launch around 10 tons, which is you know, 20,000 pounds to low Earth orbit for 50 or $60 million, you know, depending on you know, various details. I, I don't have 50 or $60 million lying around, but if you, if you run the math, uh, that works out to... I think around two and a half thousand dollars per kilogram or you know, $1,100 per pound or something like that. So it's, it's, it's pretty expensive. There are, you know, a handful of things like a, a cell phone, for example, weighs less than a pound and costs around a thousand dollars. But that's kind of the, the cost. But then if you look at the, the spacecraft, essentially that, that a NASA's bread and butter, you know, some of them are earth observation satellites, it might be a bit cheaper, but none of them are really cheaper than, you know, high tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. And then of course the flagship missions are in the billions and JWST, which has launched is around $10 billion, which is it's just, you know, it's not that they, they just burn that money up. It, it, the money reflects the fact that this is a mission that took, you know, thousands of specialists a decade to build. And none of those people are particularly cheap. They're all extremely qualified and knowledgeable and you need hundreds of them to, to do this because you need hundreds of different areas of expertise all working together, even if they've never actually met each other, all of them to, to make these things work. It's kind of a miracle in terms of its ability, in terms of the ability of these large programs to, to work at all. That said, a lot of what they have had to do in the past in order to work may not be a constraint going forward with Starship. And you know, I say maybe there's 80% chance that Starship delivers these incredible cost savings we've discussed. But if that's the case, then there should definitely be some investment within NASA uh, and, and other places for that matter to to hedge against that possibility or hedge for that possibility uh, so that you know when when Starship begins regular flights or if it begins regular flights you know there's kind of programs that are ready to take advantage of that what would it look like so, so if we've been building toward if everything we've done since since the moon program since since the 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 Apollo since before Apollo you know since the Gemini missions, if everything we've been doing has been all about it's got to weigh less it's got to weigh less smaller lighter smaller lighter and that evaporates that goes away. What would it look like? You you mentioned in your blog that instead of having to you know have some high end contractor, you know like there are these famous stories of the Pentagon paying like ten thousand dollars for a toilet. So instead of having some high-end contractor develop a very, very special vehicle that, you know, weighs so little, I think you said, you know, a, a rover that weighs as little as a motorcycle, you said you were saying that there are all kinds of off-the-shelf solutions, whole industries get impacted. What does that, yeah. that look like? Well, there's a thing called induced demand. And the basic idea is if you reduce the cost of something, you can increase the demand for it. Um, because more people are able to afford it. And so the idea there is if we're able to reduce the cost of launch, uh, we will increase demand for launch. And we don't know exactly by how much. That's that's the unknown. But we'll be able we'll find out one day. But it, it it seems it seems encouraging. It seems that if you can reduce the cost by a substantial fraction, you do have a, a reasonably substantial increase in demand and and overall an increase in the total amount of money in that industry, uh, which is good because it means more people get to work in it and more things get done. So I don't know if that answers your question. Well, I was kind of hoping to, I mean, instead of instead of a process now where it's like, okay, we need a rover. Let's put out, let's let's put out to all the contractors. Okay. 
Send me a team. Yeah, you 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 think yeah, that the, the whole process. So so the well so so one of the things that I that I think about quite a lot is SpaceX's mission is to build large bases on on Mars and on on the Moon. Like that's their self assigned mission. No one tells them to do that. Wall Street probably doesn't care. But that's what they want to do, and that's what's motivated a lot of their frankly genius engineers to go there and work so hard for so long is they want to see this vision in their lifetime. And in order to do that, it is possible, I think, that uh, SpaceX could vertically integrate and build their own rovers and build their own you know, habitation modules and build their own radios and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's kind of neglecting the fact that the United States is absolutely stuffed to the gills with extremely capable um, engineering companies that do all these kinds of things already on Earth. And all we really need is for companies like Caterpillar and Halliburton and Coke Industries and you know all the others that you know are often kind of on the, on the other end of the shouting match to be like, hey, yeah, this would probably be good for our recruitment strategy and a good talent retention and training strategy and good branding. And also, we would then not have Elon like have us on the top of his shit list and have to compete with us um, if we just basically like spooled up an, an R and D program which is relatively cheap in the scale of their business to build space qualified versions of their existing hardware. So we already have mining ro- mining robots essentially that operate in Western Australia, that operate in the United States, that are smashing up rocks all day long, that are extremely rugged, that don't need much maintenance, that are quite heavy because it doesn't matter that much on earth, um, that can be remote, remotely operated and already operate in quite hostile environments. Some of them operate under the ocean, some of them operate in, in mines that are full of you know toxic or, or corrosive materials. There is existing you know, deep benches of expertise in all these companies at making these things work, no questions asked for their client it's definitely harder to make them work in in space, but it's not that much harder. And there's this giant rocket that has an empty payload bay that's just begging for hundreds of tons of Caterpillar rovers or or, or diggers or telehandlers or whatever to to jump on board and, and fly to Mars and drive around and see what can happen. And I feel like that's what has to take place. And and if in order that something that if something like that does take place, then NASA really has to ask themselves the question, which is like, what do they end up doing? And long term, are they kind of the the agency that you know continues to build these very esoteric probes that that go out to uh, Neptune or go out to Pluto, you know, once in, once in a while and take a look around. And I think that's important, and that's an that's an important thing. And actually, NASA has a lot of other things they do as well. They do a lot of Earth science. They, NASA actually works on air traffic control, amongst other things, um, and, and flight safety and things. So so it's not like NASA's only business is launching rockets by by any means. But but I think it would be um, much more exciting for NASA and for the United States in general if if NASA had kind of strong branding rights when it came to building these bases on the Moon and Mars as well. And that means they have to be part of the picture somehow. They have to contribute. They have to they have to bring a lot of their skills to the table and in a way that is digestible by the overall project. And that means that if they they show up and say, well, the price tag's ten billion dollars, and after ten years you get you get a, a small robot that doesn't move very quickly, then then We'll probably get steamrolled. But if they're able to say, well, you know, we don't like it, but we will set up a production line and we will now make, you know, a, a version of all of our main major orbiters, landers, uh, rovers, hel- Mars helicopters, things like that. We'll we'll just churn them out. We'll make, you know, 10 a year or 100 a year. And um, and then we'll farm out the instrument production to third parties and high schools and universities and so on. Then then suddenly you have this kind of massive industrialization um, of, of the overall process of science and discovery. And yes, the individual mission returns are more risky. They might fail. They might not discover something particularly interesting. It doesn't matter because you've got hundreds of thousands of them constantly that are being that are being tried out. And just the potential for serendipity and discovery, I think, is much greater. Well, what it reminds me of particularly is the creation of the iPhone, which went hand in hand with the App Store. And I remember very distinctly just a couple of years later when the iPad came out and the criticism from technology writers was, what is this for? What, what are, what are, why are people going to want this? What are they going to need it for? The answer was, it's a platform. We can see a number of applications. 
But what's more important is the applications we can't see, and it goes hand in hand with the App Store. Lo and behold, when you open up for, hey, all the businesses, come on in, you know, here's a platform. It turns out that there's a lot of creativity and a whole new sector, a whole new part of our economy and our world was was created in 10 years. It was it was yeah, sort of breathtaking. That's a great example. Because because if you think about what cell phones and, and iPads and stuff do, it's it's a miracle. It's absolutely magical. And we, we live in the future. Like this is beyond what Star Trek imagined even 20 years ago could be possible. And yet if I'm you know, kind of a, a basement coder or a garage coder and I want to do stuff, the last thing I want to do in order to get my product in the hands of potential customers or users is think about how to actually build this, this hardware, right? It's much better if there's this kind of standardized platform out there that's externally moderated and controlled and, and produced that every user already has access to and has an onboard suite of capabilities that are simply staggering in terms of its processing and you know battery and all that kind of stuff, all the onboard sensors. And then you can just kind of combine them in, in as you say, millions and billions of ways, limited only by the creativity and the time of the of the individuals doing the the creative work, which is ne nevertheless, it's quite difficult, but it's not necessarily as difficult as spooling up a factory to make cell phones, right? And and I think you'll see similar things here. Yes, space hardware manufacturing is difficult, but but you know, in many ways, launch is 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 the hard part if you're starting from zero, because if you don't have the rocket, you don't have anything at all. And and if that problem is solved, then yeah, we'll see the potential for you know, well-motivated amateurs and even high schools to build instruments that can potentially go and do exploration on another planet. And in a serious way, you know, we're talking like million dollar budget rather than billion dollar budget. And that makes a big difference. That, I mean, the economics of it, I, I think is very compelling and it comes through in your writing. And it also, I, I can just picture listeners out there saying, okay, I get that this is kind of cool, but why do I, why do I really care? What's, what's the analogy to that Wright brothers moment? And you know, I I think there's sort of a not to sound like Donald Rumsfeld about this, but there are known knowns, there are known unknowns. We know that there are mining applications, there are commercial applications in space right now. There are companies on Earth right now who would be super interested in having a platform like this that relatively cheaply lets them get some mining equipment up into space. If it were just for that you could see the economics of this working and being a huge benefit to humankind. But it's the it's the unknown portion of this. It's the opening up the app store portion of this that I think is really exciting. Let's not forget that the, the major reason that then President Thomas Jefferson initiated the Lewis and Clark expedition was he thought that there was a potential gold mine of wealth in furs, in trading in furs throughout the continental US. And he wanted to explore largely for that reason. And then there were all the other things that the opening up of the West turned out to deliver to the United States and the world that they could not foresee at the time. It feels like we're on the verge of that kind of a moment. So with that lengthy preamble in mind, I, I kind of wanted to give you some license and you begin to hint at some of this in your blog to you know, speculate a little bit. If this platform comes to fruition and we really have this capability to do not just, you know, science missions, 100 tons sent to Titan, you know, over the course of four years, but to really do what Elon Musk set out to do, bases on the moon, bases on Mars, colonies, perhaps, what does that future look like? I mean, when you've speculated about this just in your own mind, can you paint a picture for us? What, what, what might that future be? 
It's a very deep and exciting one, I think. And in much the same way that we really kind of struggled to imagine what the App Store might be used for. Or for that matter, the Wright brothers could not have imagined that today there'd be, you know, 20 or 30,000 uh, flights of of aircraft that are larger than their first flight was long, flying every day in the United States. I mean, people say, oh, Starship launching once per, once per day, that, that sounds like a headache. It sounds noisy and difficult. Well, there's 30,000 commercial flights a day in the United States. I think we really struggle to imagine what it would look like. And, and when I first started writing and thinking about this uh, some time ago, I kind of got caught up a little bit in prescriptiveness, trying to design the you know, political system, monetary system, uh, design a city, how it would work, you know, where the taps are, where the lights are, and so on. And I eventually came to realize that that wasn't, it's not that it's not important, it's just that it's unknowable in a sense. But what you can know is you can know things about how how some of these logistical systems will fit together or how the systems have to be built in order that they can scale quickly enough to build quickly enough to get the thing done in a reasonable way period of time. And that's kind of what I've had to focus on. Otherwise, I would go crazy and spend a lot of time essentially uh, can, writing science fiction. And so, yeah, essentially, you know, getting getting a uh, self-sustaining city up and running on Mars is, is you know, it's going to take tens of millions of human years of labor to do. I, obviously, there's, there'll be eventually, you know, some number of millions of people on Mars, but there will also be millions and millions of people on Earth who will have to work on this to make it work. And when you think about what, what the the, the sheer wealth and the the productivity of that collective endeavor, it's kind of mind boggling. Like it's comparable to all of the previous kind of human logistical heavy lifts combined. We're talking like Manhattan Project combined with uh, Apollo Project combined with uh, D-Day uh, Operation Overlord logistics challenges combined with the Berlin Airlift, all kind of rolled into one. Uh, and it's not it's not that it's forbidden by the laws of physics. It's actually, if anything, encouraged by the laws of physics. But it's it's still like you know, it's still it's still kind of I don't know. It's like an epic poem that's in in progress that you're kind of in in inside of or that you're part of or or yeah, something like that. So it's it's a it's a very interesting thing to kind of consider how this will end up end up actually working. But in any case, you know, from a top level view, the per per economic productivity required to make this work required to make a self-sustaining city on an environment as inhospitable as Mars is, is roughly equivalent to all the net gains in productivity since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution on a per capita basis. So we're talking the GDP in the United States has gone up by roughly a factor of 100 since the Industrial Revolution. And that reflects the fact that, roughly speaking, humans have, in the United States, have at their disposal 100 times more energy than they did in pre-industrial times, when essentially they had access to the energy they could derive by eating not very good food and and whipping a few animals around the place, maybe, or in the South, unfortunately, some of those people who were being, people were being whipped often, you know, many economies prior to the industrial revolution relied in some form rather on serfdom or slave labor in order to extract enough wealth for the privileged few. Fortunately, we have the ability to use uh, machines to, to avoid doing that sort of thing now. Uh, and that that level of abstraction of, of mechanical labor, and in many ways, intellectual labor as well, from, from the humans actually kind of putting stuff together with their hands, will increase by another factor of 100 in order to make this work. On Mars, and that's that's kind of a really it's a really deeply exciting thing. If it works on Mars, it'll work on Earth, and it will change the way that our civilization uh, and, our, and our cities and our, our countries and so on work on Earth as well. And I think in ways largely largely for the better, in that we will be able to build the the essential to, to share and propagate human wealth around the around the entire world without having to necessarily have a nation state with hundreds of millions of people and copious local and abundant natural resources. We'll be able to do so much more with with less, and that's just it's good it's good news all around. You know, this is, this is kind of the luxury space communism that everyone wanted, I think. And it's not it's not necessarily preordained, but it is possible. It is within the grasp. And we may, if we eat enough vegetables, live to see it. <laughs> That's, you know, there was something beside the point about vegetables, which I agree with. Th- there was something really profound <laughs> in, in what you just said, which is I, listeners to this program know, and, and I commend the episode we did on the importance of U.S. federal government investment in scientific R&D 
I commend that episode to our listeners because listeners know I'm a deep believer in these things. And one of the essential points from that episode and from anyone who's studied the return on investment in science is that the returns are so profound and so unforeseeable, so unknowable. So we set out to do the moon program to sort of discover a new frontier out there. But what really ended up happening was we brought the new frontier back to us in the form of all of the technology that we developed in the course of the moon program that became embedded in the world around us. Everything you enjoy about the modern world, I guarantee you, comes out of that effort. That effort to go to space. We were talking about phones. We were talking about computers, information technology, the the ways we exploit energy. Uh, you can trace the roots of just about all of it to the moon program. And so, it's enormously enormously productive investment for the United States government, but also but also it trained you know hundreds of thousands of engineers who right. largely left the Apollo program and went on and revolutionized every single aspect of our society. There was nothing about the Apollo program that required us to get better at mining. You know, uh, but we did. It was in some ways with the Manhattan Project, but we did. We got better at everything and in ways that persist to this day, in ways that I think are not very well understood. I think that's that's 100% right. Uh, and actually many of those engineers are kind of nearing retirement age now, so it's or have retired, so or in many cases passing on. So it's like we we need to remember that this is not an accident. You know, it was quite deliberate and we need to continue investing in order to make sure that we have, you know, that standing army of millions of of incredibly smart, well-trained technical people who can continue to build our future and maintain what we already have. Well, and that that was the exciting and this is really the point I wanted to conclude on for this whole show. That's what I found so exciting and interesting about your blog piece and what you were just saying a moment ago, which is, it seems to me like your fundamental argument is that this new capability, that Starship is is now taking us to the place where we can do that again. We are about to open up a whole new capability. And in ways that we can't foresee, we're going to innovate. Companies are gonna come in. Expertise is gonna be developed. Human capital is going to be developed. We're going to go to seek a frontier that's out there, and we're going to end up bringing it back here. So the, the goal might be, hey, let's create a colony on the moon. Let's create a colony on Mars. Maybe eventually let's create a city on Mars. But what you just said is you don't have to be a Mars colonist to have it revolutionize the way we live back mm. on Earth through all the innovation that we're going to derive from that. And if we eat our vegetables, it could happen in our lifetime. I think you're a little younger than I am. So maybe your lifetime more likely than mine. We have just 30 seconds left. I mean, is that is that really what you're arguing? Yeah, I think I think the, the story is overwhelmingly good. We just have to remain open to the possibilities and, and be prepared for them, I think. Well, it's about, you know what? We're on, as we record this, it's the start of 2022. 2021 was kind of a bummer. So was 2020. So that's about as hopeful a note as I think we could hope to launch the new year on. And look, I know that this is all coming from, uh, you know, a relatively small and esoteric piece of space program technology, and maybe all of the implications won't come to pass. But Dr. Hammer, I think what you're bringing to us is the idea of maybe it's time for a rethink and a very positive one about the outlook up ahead. So thank you so much for being on Great Ideas. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Matt.